So beautiful and brave, and we thank you, Jesus, that he writes stories like this in all of our lives. Uh, today, we're talking about the topic of shame. Shame, cover, cover me from all the shame. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Genesis chapter 2. When it started at verse 24, it'll also be projected overhead into the first seven verses of Genesis 3. Let me read this for us, God's word, starting in verse 24 of Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So far, God's word from the book of Genesis. Once upon a time, there was no shame. There was no self-consciousness. There was no embarrassment. There was no humiliation. There were no divisions. There were no barriers. Once upon a time, there was no shame. It sounds like a fairy tale, right? But it's... Biblical history, it's the origins of the universe. There was no shame until Adam and Eve thought it was good to the eyes, a delight to their heart, and they fell hook, line, and sinker to the words and the lies of the serpent that if you do what God explicitly told you not to do, if you go against God's word, his wisdom, and his counsel, and you decide for yourself what is good, your eyes will be open and you'll become like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. Straight up lie. You see, this tree that God forbade was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that is such a misleading title because you and I think that at the tree, if you eat of it, you're going to gain knowledge between good and evil. That if you ate the fruit of that tree, you would gain discernment between that which is good and evil. That would not be the case or else God would not test them. What is the test? If you had no dif differentiating knowledge between good and evil, then what is the test? No, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not to gain knowledge. It was to exercise knowledge. It was to execute knowledge. It was a place to judge and choose that which is good over evil. And namely, the test is this. And it was not just in the Garden of Eden. It's the test that we face on a daily basis. 
did Adam and Eve, and will you and I trust that what God says is good, and therefore anything or anyone else that goes against that is evil? Or will you and I, like Adam and Eve, trust what we think is good, or what other people say is good, and therefore render God is evil? That's how sin works. And because sin entered into the world, because we thought we could outthink and be wiser and smarter than God, ruin and devastation came to every aspect of life. This is when shame entered. If you read in chapter 3, verse 7, which we just read, then they realized they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together. We start in chapter 2, verse 24. They were once naked, but they were completely unselfconscious about it. It was not a problem at all. But now in chapter 3, verse 7, because of the fall, shame entered into the world. This is what sin brings, and sin always brings it. Last week we learned guilt is the resultant objective condition of sin. You are declared and viewed as guilty before God, whether you feel it or not. Guilt is the legal condition of having committed sin. That means to defy God as God, I'll be my own God. Today we look at this passage, sin brings two things. It's not just guilt, a legal declaration, but it also brings shame. Shame. Let's go about defining shame. If guilt is legal, if it is individualistic, if it is in some sense linear, shame is social, more subjective, more experiential. It is that awful, nauseating, debilitating sense and experience that you are just dead wrong. Sin brings both. Sin brings both. David De Silva, in a book entitled Honor, Patronage, Kinship, and Purity, explains that in honor-shame cultures, shame is a dynamic and relational concept. Once again, if guilt is individualistic, shame and honor is derived from social relationships. It comes from the group. It is a derivative of others, the community. I can't think of a better more stunning example that was recent that when Naomi Osaka beat Serena Williams in the U.S. Open Women's Final right there in Flushing, New York, she won. She beat one of the greatest, maybe the GOAT. And she's standing there in front of the old audience about to receive her championship trophy. And in essence, the first words out of her mouth, while she had scored an incredible upset, she should be proud. She should be partying. Her first statement as an Asian person was, I am so sorry that today is not the result that you all wanted. A Japanese lady, after having won the U.S. Open, was not happy because she was far more concerned of what the crowd really had wanted. Serena Williams lost coming back from pregnancy, and she won. This is incredibly countercultural, is it not, in the West? Uh, Jackson Wu, in a book entitled Saving God's Face, a Chinese contextualization of salvation through honor and shame, describes the concept of, quote-unquote, losing face. I think for most of our congregation here, we don't have to unpack what that means, losing face. 
It's an Asian Eastern way of talking about honor and shame. So, yes, the West focuses more on guilt. I have been more guilty of focusing on guilt. If I track my Bible studies and sermons and teachings throughout all the years, about two decades, it far, far outweighs any talk about shame. And yet, here's what I've recently been, been discovering. While the West may focus on guilt, much of the rest of the world focuses on honor and shame. In fact, the majority of the world's population functions under this relational dynamic. And so do the scriptures. So do the scriptures. Yes, of course, the New Testament goes off and talks about guilt and how Jesus takes that away and he is rendered guilty before God to make those who are guilty innocent and blameless. You are justified. But I want you to count how many verses and how many passages talk about shame. It actually eclipses. It overwhelms all the passages that talk about guilt. I was raised in Western institutions. I am a product of Western education. But when you look into the scriptures, which is so nuanced and sophisticated, it covers and touches all cultures. And today we talk about the very thing under which the majority of the world operates. And of course, our church does too. And this is very much like the Greco-Roman society, a culture of the first century. When Apostle Paul wrote the New Testament letters, 20 times at least he talks about approval, approval, approval. Different Greek words, that is a resolution to shame. He is addressing his common culture. And what kind of culture was Apostle Paul trying to minister to? Not a Western one. It was very Eastern, and they knew all about honor and shame. Just one more example to really press this home in defining shame. Dr. Brené Brown, a research professor at the University of Houston, graduate college, I believe, of social work. She's blown up, super popular, because she talks in a way that really hits to uh, our hearts. In one of her books entitled Daring Greatly, here's how she defines shame. Quote, I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough for love, belonging, or connection. I'm unlovable, I don't belong. And for some people I know, and it saddens me and I'm afraid, that that kind of mantra, that kind of feeling that you cannot be loved, it doesn't matter how many people tell you that, It doesn't matter how many cards or emails are written your way. It doesn't matter how often you hear that from a pulpit or in your small group. There is a barrier in your soul which just does not allow you to feel like you actually could be loved. And when you're in that spiral of shame, for some of us, it's an endless loop. It's like a soundtrack to your life that never stops. You press play, but it's on an endless repeat where you do not feel like anyone could really love and accept you if they knew everything about you. This is precisely what Dr. Brené Brown is getting at, and so do the scriptures. But I want to tell you, my friend, as we begin to wrestle with this topic, do you know that nobody in this room can survive or let alone thrive under a shame spiral like that? Do you know what's going to happen? It's bound to come out in either self-harm, self-loathing, self-destruction. Will you hate or hurt yourself? Or 
you're going to have to hate and hurt others. Unresolved, bitter, ongoing shame where you feel you are so less than, unqualified, you cannot belong. You cannot really be seen or loved. This will have to come out in either self-destructive tendencies or in harming and hating others. You know, this week I had to reflect upon the times, you know, Harold, why is it that especially with loved ones, the ones who are closest to you, why is it, Harold, sometimes you catch yourself and you just like lose it? Have any of you in this room just ever lost it? You just completely lost it, especially with your child doing something that you know is a glaring weakness or immaturity and because you've wrestled with it your whole life you just don't want your child to do the same thing that you do because you know it has consequences and so you lose your temper you lose your composure and then you start saying things that you're even surprised you're saying them they're like the lowest blows it's character assassination it's utter humiliation you just want to completely destroy the other person have you ever done something like that Do you know people who do that, who humiliate and shame others? Do you want to know why that's happening? Do you know why I do that? I'm still dealing with my own shame. Those who have not dealt with real shame, the subjective, actual experience and feeling, it's going to have to come out. And it does. So how do we deal with this? Here's the three typical ways. It's all captured right here from the beginning of time. At the onset of creation, three tendencies that Adam and Eve took, and we have discovered not many two new ways of how we deal with shame. First, we hide and keep secrets. We love to hide and keep secrets. You filter information. Got to make sure not too many people find out. What did Adam and Eve do? It says, actually, in verse 9, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Sounds to me in verse 9 that it was a usual, typical, regular thing. Imagine that. God, the majestic, omnipotent creator of all things, used to hang out and walk regularly with man and woman in a garden. And what was customary was utterly broken and ruined, that as he was walking in the middle of the day, he comes, and what does he do? God is not lost. He's seeking someone who's lost now. God is not at a lack or loss of information. He is inviting Adam and Eve back in. And he asked the question in the next verse, Adam, where are you? How does Adam respond? Verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So where did all this nonsense come from? If God is the source of all of life and every good thing flows from him and 
There's no possibility of healing or forgiveness or redemption. He's the one that can even bring life after death. If God is the source of every good and perfect gift flows from him, where and when do we start to run away from him? Why do we do that? Why do we hide from God? It's right here. It's because of shame of sin. We get afraid. We're afraid. We can't handle the exposure of our own nakedness. We hide. We try to keep secrets. Jimmy Hahn, our pastor, who amazingly visited all the small groups last year, all 30-something. And I say, Pastor Jimmy, who has been so much of a pastor to me, break it down, brother. Tell me everything, unfiltered. How are small groups like? He's always so gracious and nice. Very few things was anything negative or critical. And he led with this, and he emphasized, you know how small groups here at Christ Central tend to be open, vulnerable, honest. And I thank God for that. I think our culture has matched more of the gospel of the freedom it brings to be more open. I think having wonderful, amazing stories of grace. By the, one, by the way, everyone's story is a beautiful work of art by God. I thank God for that, but I know we still got a long way to go too. Because I know as your pastor that every single person in this room, you see, I used to think it was exceptional, I used to think it was abnormal. No, it's actually the norm because this is what shame does to everyone. You have secrets. Don't you? Every family member has some secret. Every person goes through some kind of financial fear, panic, or ruin. People deal with addictions on levels right now that cannot, it cannot be possible that the church would escape it all. We go through relational crisis and scandal and loss, the likes of which still nobody knows about. And can I tell you as your pastor, I'm certainly not telling you, go and share it and blast it on our e-newsletter and you have to come and announce it publicly. No, go to those you trust. Go to those who are godly, those, those who will really cry with you and pray for you. But do you know the worst kinds of sins you're ever going to deal with? Do you know the worst kinds of problems that's going to really bring ruin to your life? The worst sins and problems are the ones that nobody knows about. The worst marital crisis is the one that nobody knows about. The deepest, darkest things I do when I am so despairing or depressed is the stuff that nobody knows about. When we hide and keep secrets, shame is an effective killer because it'll never actually help you heal and improve from the thing that you are so struggling against. You see, when Adam and Eve got afraid of God, why do you think God was walking in the garden? He was inviting and initiating back in. But when they got afraid and ran away from God, you are actually cutting off the very source that could actually ever bring a resurrection or redemption. This is not how we ought to deal with shame. So often I have found in our church, in many churches, particularly of an Eastern culture, that people will only share Oftentimes, I'm sorry to say, when too much damage has been done. 
people will only share because it's already publicly out there. Like you can't contain it. So you have to share it now. And whatever stigma is attached of actually getting help and counseling, even on a professional level. Look, nobody in this room stigmatizes, if I have a physical illness or hurt, I need to go to a medical doctor. But why would we turn around that scenario and say, well, it is more shameful. There's a greater stigma if I suffer mentally or emotionally or I've suffered from trauma and abuse, the likes of which that really needs to be addressed because it's brought so much shame. Run and hide. Keep secrets. Here's a second way that we tend to deal with shame. We blame shift. We blame shift. Who told you? God, who told you? Why did you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Oh, the first man, the first husband, doesn't acknowledge how much he failed, completely failed. He had no leadership. He had no love for his wife. He was not loyal to her. He threw her under the bus right away. He was not teaching and instructing from the word of God. He was not there when she ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so when Adam is asked, what does he say? The woman you gave me. Oh, that's a double whammy. This is amazing. God, Adam actually double blames not only his wife, and then he says, God, you gave her to me. And then the woman, Eve, follows suit. Does she not? The serpent. The serpent's fault that I took and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. By the way, I mentioned this before. Where do you think the whole logo of Apple comes from? Climbing the tree, taking the fruit, so that you will become wise and it's a delight to your own eyes. But here's one of the tendencies we do to cover it. We blame shift. And this is endemic to all people and races across the board, but of course it's more pronounced in cultures that are of an Eastern background. A strong honor and shame dynamic. And these two responses so far of hiding, keeping secrets, and blaming actually work together sometimes in perfect tandem. A local pastor here in Los Angeles, former mentor of mine, and I keep in contact with him regularly, pastored a ministry, and all of a sudden, another pastor called him from a church, uh, maybe just down the street, and said, hey, so-and-so, I just want to tell you that several of your married couples showed up my church this last Sunday. And so the pastor was surprised. He had no idea that several of his married couples were checking out another church. And so he called every husband of those couples that he had heard had supposedly left. And each husband over the phone said, we're doing totally fine. Nothing's wrong. His pastor actually wrote this down in a book. You see, they all hid. They all lied. They had told few confidential friends of the church that they had left, but when their pastor actually directly asked them, whom he had been meeting with them regularly for like a yearly basis for marital Bible study and counseling, he was so shocked, he was so sad and so confused, he was really hurt. The next thing he hears is that those couples on the way out had been telling their parents and relatives of the church who happened to be leaders and elders of the church. So several of these couples who left the church had been telling their parents and relatives who were elders of the church, and the elders were trying to now pass a motion to fire this pastor. 
So the pastor had no idea that the couples had left. When he tried to address it, they didn't tell him the truth. And then the next thing is now his job is on the line. And he's being blamed for their departure. Some time passed. And sad to say, the pastor then heard through the grapevine. Some other member who kept in touch with the members who had just left. Several of those couples were filing for divorce. They were going through divorce. The wreckage and the hurt of divorce. And then the pastor writes... Right then and there, everything began to make sense. Because of the shame to themselves and to their families at the church, they had to hide and keep secrets. And because of the shame of what was going on at home, they had to blame someone. And in this case, it was a pastor. My friend, you can pick your poison here, though. If you hide and keep secrets... Or you just blame shift, neither will ever heal you. Neither answer or approach is the one that Jesus himself ever recommends. In fact, neither approach is the one that Jesus himself took to deal with our shame. Here's a third. We're going to call it camouflage. A third tendency of how we try to deal with shame. First, hide and keep secrets. Second, we blame shift. Third is we camouflage. And it's kind of silly. I think it's meant to be comic. They sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They could like barely cover your little private parts and so that maybe you won't be seen before God and all-seeing, all-knowing God. A commentator by the name of Robin Stockett on a theology of shame notes this. Listen to this. For some people, shame is camouflaged by an excess of pious spirituality. Or for others, it's by resignation. We go to extraordinary lengths to run away from this disease of the soul by denying it is there, by refusing to stop, by filling every corner of our lives with busyness, hoping that the dreaded feeling will simply drift away and disappear. Did you know that there's a tendency for church Christian types the way you deal with your shame is you just get engrossed, hyper, hyper committed, overly busy, so distracted you can never actually really think or reflect or pray. Did you know that in certain cultures, the churches almost gear everything about bigger, better, louder, longer, harder, incline, success, always grow. It always has to be like that. Thank God, God our church is not like that. But why do you think a lot of people almost lose their lives? They have no life outside of their pious activity. Could it be shame? And if you're motivated by shame in any of the religious activity that you do, it's bound to end up in only two outcomes. It's proven over and over and over. It's only going to end up in two outcomes. Burnout, emotionally, physically, just burnout, because the motivation of shame doesn't really last, doesn't really work, or a scandal. And here's the ironic thing. When you choose the path to camouflage your shame for a little bit, but it ends up in burnout or scandal, do you know what ends up happening ultimately? Deeper, worse shame comes your way. And so the very thing that we were temporarily trying to band-aid, the very thing that we were trying to avoid, the very thing we're trying to run away, actually comes in spades. Oh, my friends, 
That's how we, along with Adam and Eve, try to deal with our shame. How does Jesus Christ deal with it? What did he come to do? How does he cover my shame and yours? Oh, let's turn in our scriptures to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. It'll also be projected on a slide here. Let me read it for us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. How did Jesus come to cover my shame? Well, this passage tells us, look to him, out and upward to him, and you will find that in particular at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, there were at least four transactions that took place. This is from Dr. Ben Shin, who wrote a book entitled Tapestry of Grace, Untangling Complexities, four transactions that took place at the crucifixion, his observations, his insights. Number one, Jesus carried the cross publicly. It's not a private ceremony. They didn't go up to the mountains or to the woods and just have one priest show up and say, okay, you're married now. Nothing wrong with that, but this is not the way Jesus died. Luke chapter 23, verse 26, it says, before a crowd of people, Jesus had to carry up the cross. Everything was laid out in the open. Nothing was kept secret. Recently, I saw an HBO documentary, a film based on actual facts. I wonder why I watched it. It was called Confirmation. It's about Anita Hill appearing before the Senate, having a hearing, talking about explicit ways and direct, in just absolute direct, detailed ways in which the Supreme Court Justice nominee by the name of Clarence Thomas had conducted himself, according to her, at, at their former workplace. And do you know how Clarence Thomas, in a defiant way, tried to defend himself? This is no reflection about whether Kavanaugh is guilty here or not. I'm not making any judgment there. But there Clarence Thomas is saying, he said, what is private to me? There are certain parts of my life that are private and they should be kept private. He called it, this is a national disgrace. This is a high-tech lynching of uppity blacks. But he says, but what's private to me, you got to keep private. Do you know that when Jesus carried the cross, there was no privacy. He was utterly exposed. He was stripped naked. He was on public display. When Hebrews chapter 12 tells you how you should deal with your shame, it's actually asking you, look to the one who went through shame like that. Here's a second transaction. Jesus was mocked and beaten. He was mocked and beaten repeatedly, unfairly, taking our pain. Jesus went public, and he was beaten to take our pain. Third, Jesus was given a crown of thorns, a crown of thorns, absorbing our disgrace and humiliation. Luke chapter 23, verse 38. There are some of you in this room, you'd rather die than to be disgraced. 
You'd rather go through physical torture than to be disgraced. Do you know Jesus was disgraced? They mocked him in public as the king of the Jews while they nailed him to a cross and they spat upon him. A fourth transaction, Jesus was finally crucified, left for dead. He died. He died to crucify and put to rest all our shame. In an honor and shame culture such as ours, in an honor and shame culture such as the Greco-Roman society of the first century, what Jesus did, who was innocent on all counts, was he experienced shame in total. And if you begin to see Instead of just on endless loop of a shame spiral, but if you begin to look upward and outward regularly, looking, looking, present, ongoing, ongoing, keep doing it, keep doing it, put that on endless loop, put that on repeat, don't stop doing it. And if you're looking to Jesus, here's what Jesus will give us it's the greatest exchange. He'll take your shame and he'll bestow upon you his honor. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. When you look to Jesus and you see that he did all that to take all your shame in his totality, in exchange he gives you the very honor that he deserves. My friend, Jesus went public. He was totally open. There were no more secrets. Do you know what that means? That means he gives you permission to be open and go public. I'm not talking about public in the way, again, you got to lay it all out there on like social media. No, no, no. I'm just talking about you don't have to keep everything secret, secret. When Jesus was beaten and beaten and beaten and beaten and mocked and over again, taking our pain. What that means is you don't have to keep beating down on yourself. At the crucifixion, if Jesus was beaten and he took and absorbed all our pain, that means we no longer have to inflict pain upon ourselves. Because Jesus was disgraced. He was utterly humiliated and disgraced. One of the Psalms says, I lift up my head. I lift up my eyes. You can raise your head high, not because you're boastful. No, it's because you're busy looking to Christ. And last but not least, he really died. He really was crucified, taking all of our shame so that you and I no longer have to feel you cannot be loved, you cannot be forgiven. You don't belong. My friends, this is not what we heard in a brave and beautiful way from our sister Jasmine Kim today. And if you have a hard time looking upward and outward to Jesus, do you know how gracious Jesus is? He'll actually come and show up near you. You're so used to so much shame that you can't even look up and look for hope in Jesus. Well, all right. Then Jesus will get close to you and he'll show up. Through a friend who loves you. Through a sibling who was faithful. Through an old, old friend you lost touch with but was unconditionally praying for you. 
through a church, through a random meeting sometimes. Jesus loves to show up seeking that which was lost. He's not lost. He finds those who are. He's not lacking information of what's really happened to you in your life. He already knows all about your sins. But do you know he comes in the cool of the day in the garden, walking through it, not to crush you, not to turn you away, not to tell you that you're finished, not to tell you that you can't return into the Father's arms. No, God is in the cool of the garden on that day so that you don't have to go around making silly fig leaves to cover yourself. He came to cover you. He came to cover you. Roy Kim, who recently just got remarried, was a pastor at Fullerton Presbyterian Church, first marriage, and he told me just a couple weeks ago, on September 7th to be exact, we meet up regularly, we still keep in touch, I love that brother. And I asked him in preparation for this sermon, Roy, how did you deal with shame? It didn't take him too long. And he recollected exactly the precise moment in which God started to expose and unpack and heal his shame. He said, I went up to a group meeting up in NorCal. I remember I started to share my story that he was married. He's the pastor of the church. His wife cheated on him repeatedly with someone younger who was attending the church. All the anger, all the rage, all the feeling of betrayal. Then he had to walk through the whole season of life in which he could no longer serve as a pastor at that church. Think about the shame and the disgrace. Think about all the things that he was going through. And he said, for the first time I was allowed to share in front of a group of people of all the pain, all the details. Firsthand, I got to actually share my story. And he said, the leader of the group, a lady, obviously filled with the Spirit of God, After he finished the story, he said, she leaned in and she said, Roy, I can hear so much pain and I can hear so much shame. Thank you for sharing. But I want you to know, with all the pain and shame, I want more of you. I want more of you. And do you know on Artesia Boulevard, sitting outside of Coffee Bean, two fully middle-aged old men, Roy just started to weep. He said he will never forget how Jesus showed up, incarnation. Because he said all of his life, he felt he wasn't wanted. He was rejected. He was abandoned. But for that lady to lean in and say, I hear all the pain and shame, and I want more of you. My friend, do you know that Jesus, that he really wants more of you? (laughs) I'm not talking about a stale, distant, unpassionate, unemotional. I'm not talking about Jesus like barely tolerates you. Or Jesus is like forced to have you. It's like a business duty for him that he had to come after you. I'm talking about his heart would break to live a life without you. 
And he's the only one who sees and knows everything about you through and through. And you're so afraid, aren't you? You're so afraid. You're so afraid that he can't handle it. You're so afraid he can't forgive it. You're so afraid that he still won't want you. Are you afraid he won't love you? But how could you be so afraid? When at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, he is showing you in every single way, I want your shame. I'll take it in full and I'm going to raise your head and I'm going to bestow upon you an honor. My honor. You no longer have to be ashamed. If I could. If I could. I would. I want you to feel how wanted you are by our Savior. How much he values you, how much he looks for you, how much he cares about you, how much he never can forget about you, how much he prays for you, how much he would go to to never lose you. Jesus shows up. Just look up, look out. He's right there. You can even hear him through Bob Dylan and Adele. I've quoted them several times, but I just can't get over it because no one could sing this better than Jesus. I'd grow hungry. I'd go black and blue. I'd go crawling down the avenue. No, there's nothing that I wouldn't do. There's nothing that I wouldn't do to make you feel my love. There is nothing Jesus would not do to make you feel his love. Let's come to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, let me invite the worship team up at this time as we go into a time of prayer. Please come on up here with me. And I invite you now. Would you look up? Would you look out and see the one who came to cover all my shame? Run to him, don't run away. Move toward him, don't be afraid. Don't deal with your shame the normal way you've done all your life. Deal with it as you see Jesus dying on a cross for you. He wants you, he's calling you. Fall into his arms, right here, right now. And just share and unload all the shame to him he can take it he'll handle it in fact he wants it he wants you with it that's why he came let's pray let's pray let's pray to Jesus